страшних ворогів і рахуючих гроші сміявся хетма. Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator at Geopolitics Think Tank in Washington, D.C. And today I have a great podcast for you with my friends, Michael Kaufman, a senior fellow now at the Carnegie Endowment for a National Peace, Rob Lee, senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and Andrei Leskovich, who runs the Ukraine Defense Fund, a charity that is doing some really amazing work providing non-lethal equipment to Ukrainian troops. I would highly, highly encourage you to donate to this incredible charity, ukrainedefensefund.org. If you're willing, every single dollar goes directly to the equipment, to the troops, no overhead, and it's really directly contributing to their success and saving lives at the front line. So welcome to the show, guys. Greetings. All right. Thanks for having us. Hey, thanks for having us. All right. So, Mike, Rob, you just recently got back from Ukraine, and Andre, you're spending most of your time there. What I wanted to talk about today is this evolution in drone warfare and particularly FPV drones. And I know you guys have a piece coming out on this very topic in terms of Mike and Rob. So, Mike, maybe we can start with you. We've talked a lot over over the last year about the artillery shortages, the ammo shortages that Ukrainians are experiencing, which are about to get even more acute as they're receiving probably several million shells from North Korea and ramping up their own production in Russia. To what extent do you see FPVs as an alternative to artillery and an ability to at least at some level compensate for those shell shortages that the Ukrainians will experience undoubtedly over the next year because the Western production is not keeping up? And what have you observed at the front in terms of how they're being used and the evolution of that technology? Let's start with you, Mike. Okay, sure. So let me try to paint the picture and then hand it over a bit to Rob. So I don't see them as an alternative because they can't fill the roles of artillery, but I see them as a very useful offset. And they can lead to good tactical and doctrinal adaptation because with drones like FPDs, you can use them defensively to take out uh, armored fighting vehicles, to take out infantry. You can use them in support of offensive operations. Uh, Drone munitions come in a wide variety. and They're typically modified by the people who assemble these. But drones have come to steadily take over the battlefield at the tactical level at around the 10 to 15 kilometer range, not in substitution to the other capabilities we often discuss, like minefields, anti-tank guided missiles, tanks, helicopters, but in addition to them. And what they've done is they make it very difficult to operate at daytime with vehicles, right, within a certain range of the front line. Now, that being said, FPVs and typical drones use have their own limitations. First, Difficult to use in mass, they interfere with each other's signals, and that's something that's not been broken through yet. So when people think, I can substitute volume of fire with volume of drones, the answer is the technology is maturing. Maybe you will be able to, but you can't do that yet, right? Second, drones negate terrain. No, they don't. Your actual terrain does matter. You need other drones to retransmit a signal to to get range on your drone. The side that has the high ground has advantage in signal propagation and transmission to the drones as well. It still matters. Um, next. You know, these these drones have revolutionized warfare. You know, I always get heartburn whenever I hear the word revolutionized. I prefer the word it's led to an evolution. The technology is still maturing. Nobody using the drone says we don't need artillery anymore, but you increasingly see that the drones can be used to deny uh, certain types of certain types of capabilities, certain types of mobilities within a range and and offset the requirement for high volume deployment of artillery. That said, there's a whole range of views on how effective drones are. That is, what percentage of missions of drones are successful. And it requires training. It requires a lot of operators to use. So it's not quite that simple and easy. And two final points. I'll turn it to Rob. The first is, to use drones, you have to scale the production of actual drone systems and the training of drone operators. And skill really matters. Second, you still need drone munitions. And here Ukraine has a deficit, although one that I think is far easier to plug, right? The folks that think, hey, we can just substitute main caliber artillery types for drone munitions. Okay, that might be easier if Ukraine actually was flush with the munitions for drones, but there are two light challenges and issues. All right, and maybe say some thoughts for Rob on this. Yeah, Rob, so talk about what you've seen in terms of how those FPVs, these are the first person view drones where you're looking directly as you're flying them. And you can do that at much greater speeds and more accurately. 
how they're used at the front. I know you have some interesting stories from the CP, the command post that you visited, both in terms of ISR, uh, the intelligence on the collection of the battlefield, and in terms of actual use for destruction. So I guess one of the things I'd, I'd emphasize is that we were there in July, and then we came back in November. And July, Ukraine faced a variety of, of, of threats to the Russian side, right? a variety of anti-tank capabilities that made it difficult to mass armor. But by November, FPVs were the main threat. Right, so maybe before it was artillery, maybe it was it was ATGMs or, or a variety of things. FPV is the thing they emphasize. We got there in November, and it, some parts of the front, as Mike was saying, it it, it completely affects their, uh, their their tactics. Right, so they'll they'll operate first thing in the morning at dawn, which is like a traditional thing people would do in warfare. Like you know, this is true of the French Indian War, um, but they operate things FPVs. The cameras weren't as effective right at dawn, but you could still kind of see, and it was you know you have a, a brief amount of time you could operate. And some Ukrainian units would drop off their assault groups. Um, they basically drive them up our vehicles, drop them off the first line of trenches, and then the vehicles would leave. The vehicles would be gone for the whole day, and they're expected to try to hold that trench right for the entire day. And so Russia would do counterattacks, and it becomes this kind of FPV battle where, on one hand, you know. Um, Russia will try to counterattack with its own forces. If Ukraine has enough FPVs, that might be sufficient to help, you know, to hold this first line of trenches that you took that morning. Um, but at the same time, Russia's going to try and uh, knock these guys out of the trench with FPVs too. And as Mike was saying, FPVs are, are, are useful. They have some advantages over artillery. They have some disadvantages. Um, and advantages, you can fly right into a trench, right? You can fly right into a dugout. That means you can hit, um, you know, cover concealed positions more effectively than artillery typically. But of course, EW is, is a significant problem uh, due with FPVs, and Russia is now expanding its use of, of tactical EW, like trench EW, for you know individual like platoon positions. They're putting EW systems on tanks. We're actually seeing some some of these old um, RCID jammers they use in Syria. We're now seeing them be applied back onto armored vehicles again. Most likely, they're trying to, to repurpose them to to, to uh, fill a kind of counter FPV role. I know we're doing the same thing, so it, it wouldn't be surprised if they are. Um, and so, you know, depending in some places, FPVs are a kind of dominant thing. But it's important to keep in mind, um, Ukraine mostly is doing kind of small-scale attacks, right? And so we say that FPVs are a big problem for that. Well, if they're doing a brigade-level operation, FPVs, because as Mike mentioned, right, it's, 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 it's you know, each team is operating one at a time. You have to have a different team operating, you know, a, a retransmitter UAV, a different team operating a Mavic to try and provide, you know, ISR for the for the FPVs. So it's not as though it's a small, you know, group doing this. It's a large kind of uh, number of UAV operators kind of operating. <clears throat> and, you know, weather's a big factor, right? If it's, if it's foggy, if, there's, if it's overcast, FPVs are not that effective. Um, that affects operations again, right? Sometimes if, if the weather is quite overcast for a few days, that may a, a, a affect when you do operations, when you do assaults, when you defend, how you do so, right? So all these sort of things. So, so course, you almost want to launch operations in terrible <clears throat> weather, right? Yeah, it, it, sometimes, yes, right? It, it depends where the, where the advantage is. But, you know, it's interesting with, with FPVs, and, and there's a lot more we'll talk about kind of in the future about this, but it's also interesting is how FPV units are being kind of uh, um, the, the supporting relationships with infantry units, right? So they're, they're often put it into kind of direct support of a assault that's going on. And so you'll have maybe an ISR UAV platoon that'll be providing, you know, um, um, kind of surveillance, intelligence, reconnaissance, right? Through those UAV feeds, company commanders, battalion commanders, or infantry units will command their troops, right? They'll, they'll see what's happening. They'll communicate that to the guys on the front line. And then you'll also have FPV units sometimes put in direct support of these units. And you'll have different FPV teams. Some of them will be tasked with with hitting, say, the, the, the trench that's being assaulted, Right, so that they'll happen before the actual assault occurs. A little bit, kind of how like artillery is, is put in, you know, direct support attached to infantry units, and then you also a different FPV team to often put in, in um, tasks with kind of preventing counterattacks. So it's interesting. The it's not just attacks being developed, but also kind of how they're being employed. The structure is different. So different Ukrainian brigades have had different structural um, um, breakdowns to these units, but ultimately a lot of this is quantity issue. Right, it's 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 numbers game. And then there's we're in, a, we're in a phase of very fast technological um, uh, development, and so with anything in warfare, right, there's always an offense-defense balance, right? When you develop some new offensive capability, then there'll be a defensive kind of countermeasure that comes up, and then you have an offensive countermeasure that, that process goes on continuously. We're seeing that right now, and there's a question it is to me is we've seen FPVs become very uh, uh, effective this summer. Is a question is will EW make kind of strides in the next few months because it's this really significant demand for that. It will, you know, I've no doubt when Mike and I go back, you know, next time, 
that the the nature of the FPV fight will be different, right? And and I think I think one way it's, it's already being different is that up until now, FPVs were not operating that much at nighttime. We are now increasingly seeing um, FPVs set up with thermal cameras, right? There's some very cheap, you know, Chinese thermal cameras that went a couple hundred dollars. And so we're already seeing that as a problem. I know in Avdivka and elsewhere where the Russians are using um, uh, thermal FPVs. And it makes it quite difficult because up until now, Ukraine could only kind of resupply certain frontline areas at, at nighttime, right? To, to get around the FPV threat. If FPVs with thermal cameras are, you know, a, a kind of persistent threat going on and there's no countermeasure to it, that could that could make it much more difficult for Ukraine to hold some of these positions. Because in a lot of cases, to get up to the front line, right behind your own line, you have to, you know, in many cases, they have to hike maybe five, six kilometers to do so, or they use vehicles very sparingly to do so. And, and Rob, talk a little bit about the munition piece as well, because most people don't appreciate that there's, you know, Mike mentioned that there's a supply chain issue for these RPG rounds that are typically used, but the RPG rounds are designed to be shot from a rocket that flies really, really fast, right? So the fuses probably need to be modified for an FPV drone to make it more useful. And you also have this very bulky thing hanging off the drone that affects its aerodynamics and affects, obviously, its battery life, et cetera. So you're probably going to see innovations in how you integrate explosives into the structure of these FPV drones going forward as opposed to jerry-rigging them with these RPG rounds, right? Yeah, and, and look, I think the overall point, right, and this is certainly true right now, but true over the entire war, is that Ukraine's never had enough ammunition, right? Never had enough artillery ammunition, mortar ammunition, tank ammunition. And so they always compensate in different ways, right? We started using tanks in a kind of indirect fire role to make up this lack of artillery ammunition. We're doing with FPVs now. And the munitions they use, they use whatever they have, right? And so initially, they're using a lot of RPG munitions, um, RPG missions are, are you know good enough in that they're they're relatively cheap. And if you hit a tank from the top or the rear, you can you know reliably uh, uh, penetrate you know armor in many cases. But right, RPG munitions, it, it uh, the nature of them, you, you have to you have to break the kind of like uh, the front wall cone. I forgot what it's called. And if you don't break it uh, properly, the RPG will not will not detonate properly. And so I, mean, I remember when I was training the Georgians, I saw them fire a lot of RPG seven rounds. And if you hit um, if you hit the side of a, a hill. But the, um, the but the angle isn't isn't right. It won't detonate. It'll just keep kind of going. And so a lot of times you see FPVs they'll hit a target and the mission won't necessarily uh, function properly. And you said RPGs you know are flying faster than FPVs typically are when they hit a target. Um, in another case, you know a lot of times the FPVs using you know against armor sometimes sometimes infantry. Well, a RPG round that is designed for penetrate tank is not ideal for hitting, you know, infantry, right? It's not enough frag. So they're adapting in a variety of ways. Um, they are making some specialized kind of munitions. Um, some of these are, right, they're using kind of RPG munitions. Sometimes they're using um, other kind of, of, of uh, high explosive kind of submunitions, um, you know, anti-tank grenades. Um, but they're also developing thermobaric kind of munitions, their own kind of, uh, um, you know, bespoke kind of HE with more fragmentation. But you said that the big problem is a, st- is a lack of standardization, right? So on one hand, making these munitions is very dangerous. So a lot of people get killed, lose their fingers, other things of that. Because literally, we're talking about these things being built in the you know, apartments or in the front line or elsewhere. It's a dangerous job. A lot of cases, the FPV you, you, you might have can only carry so much weight. And so they have to kind of like shave down an RPG munition so it gets within the weight tolerance. As you said, right, it's a lot of this comes down to the, the, the skill of the pilot. Well, the skill of pilot is much more difficult if every time they're operating FPV, it's a little different, different materials. Um, also, the munition they're flying has a different kind of you know weight, aerodynamics, so on. All that affects these kind of things, right? And so, you know, I posted a video yesterday that that shows a, it was a Russian tank and like something like five or six Ukrainian FPVs go after while driving. Two of them hit, but don't don't, don't penetrate the tank. And then three of them miss, right? While it's driving at full speed. It, it, it just comes back to, you know, as I said before, FPVs are a, a way of partially compensating for lack of artillery ammunition, but it's not a full thing, right? It can't, it can't perform the, the full kind of range of missions that artillery can. And in a lot of cases, in terms of tanks, right, you know, there was uh, the, 90, the Ukraine's 93rd Mechanized Brigade had a, their UAV unit posted a, a, a kind of infographic the other day about the losses they inflicted over the previous month and showed they hit 17 tanks, none of which were destroyed. Right. So they, whereas they're destroying, you know, BMPs, BTRs, other vehicles, but tanks are just not reliably penetrating them. So it's, it's again, something to keep, keep in mind, the, the we go back to, the, you know, tanks, passive armor on tanks is still very useful because you're not always going to penetrate these things. And a lot of times you get this kind of false sense of, of think of how vulnerable these things are. 
Um, so again, you know, FPVs, they are extremely important. The munition issue is, is significant. The munitions shortage is a big issue. I think that's one way that Western countries can help Ukraine is let Ukraine produce FPVs maybe themselves and then try and come up with munitions, either, either RPG munitions they're already using, so maybe Bulgaria can produce more, or maybe there's other kind of munitions we can make that are bespoke for FPVs that can make them more efficient for different kind of missions. So I guess one lesson here is a tank is not yet obsolete either, right? Andre, let's bring you in. You know, Rob mentioned electronic warfare, EW. That is a huge issue for both sides, right? Interfering with these drones, causing a lot of the losses of those drones. We've talked to you before when we were on the train back from Kiev about both friendly fire issues and EW issues. Talk about some of the compensating technologies that are being used now to counter the EW threat and how the Ukrainians are in particular thinking about it. EW remains a major problem along the front. Um, it's a continual cat and mouse game. Uh, with FPV specifically, the first iteration of this game had to do with uh, trying to interfere with telemetry, which is uh, generally on frequencies between 860 and 930 megahertz. So that band is getting jammed quite comprehensively in many areas. Uh, usually a different band is used for video transmission, something like 5.8 gigahertz. And the primary uh, challenge right now is on the telemetry. So the idea is that you're trying to make sure that the drone cannot be operated. Then even if the video is still intact, uh, the drone becomes uh, much less of a threat. It still means that if this occurs right next to the target, the drone may still hit the target if it's properly positioned, uh, even if it's not too far from uh, this target. These trench-based uh, EW uh, devices, they generally have a range of a few a few dozen meters, like 50 to 100 meters. The, these are handhelds, right? Are, these are not the big trucks that they have for EW. Uh, they're in between. They're, they may be hand, I mean, they're a bit too big to carry for an individual person, but they can be mounted on a vehicle. They could be placed in a trench, and they need to be powered by battery, and oftentimes they're not on 24-7. Uh, and so you, you kind of need to know that there's a threat to turn them on, and if it's the first strike, you may miss it. So right now, it's not clear that uh, there's an impenetrable wall of uh, you know EW interference on these frequencies. Is still fairly high among the experienced groups. Fairly high hit rate. I mean, they generally do something sophisticated, trying to understand if there is a large jammer using spectrum analyzer. If uh, it's a small, less power jammer, they obviously won't see it from a distance, but they would try to fly over with say a Mavic or something else. And we try to see if on a 5.8 gigahertz, there is some interference. So we try to kind of explore the EW environment before they send the FPV to hit the target. And um, in that process, so the countermeasures to the countermeasure right now is people are trying to switch telemetry to different frequencies. There's a number of attempts to move down uh, you know, to 825 and below. Uh, that requires changing the the hardware. You need a different antenna and you need to update the firmware. So that work needs to happen locally. And this is one of those things that they need to constantly iterate on because if everyone moves in mass to a different frequency, the other side will just adjust their um, interference to that band. And, and they're not uh, yet one using thing that's, kind of software-defined radios where they can adjust that on the fly. I assume that's too expensive. It's a challenging question because you cannot jam all frequencies all the time, right? And the time that you have to react to an FPV once it's close enough is very limited. I mean, the entire flight path from the launch point to the target is a few minutes, like, you know, four or five minutes and, and the target get hit. Um, and uh, the, the, the question here is uh, how does one uh, maintain uh, in a good enough signal for enough of a flight path to actually hit the target? And it doesn't require that there's no interference at all. You just need to, um, you need it to be good enough. And then there is this entire uh, difference between analog and digital signals. They are relying on analog signals quite extensively because the jamming there results in a poor quality image, but you can still see the outline of the target. So you have this partial de degradation rather than you know something that would happen in a digital context where it looks much more binary. Um, so that effort is ongoing and trying to switch frequencies and trying to uh, also solve the problem of concentration. So one of the things that uh, Robin Mike mentioned, uh, this is problem with uh, amassing a lot of them in one location. So the, the latest numbers I've heard is that on a kilometer of a front, they can currently operate about 20 drones at once. So it's, if they fly out in diverging patterns within 140, 180 degrees, they can accommodate low double-digit number of these FPV drones, which is 
not too small. And then if they were to uh, disperse the video and move the video from 5.8 to other frequencies, 4.8, 3.3, they can correspondingly increase the size. The other thing to keep in mind is that this problem of interference has been solved in the commercial setting. I mean, you can imagine a rally where there's a thousand people, everyone has a cell phone, and they, yeah, they can still use the cell phones. So it's clearly not some insurmountable challenge. You just need to manage your spectrum uh, wisely. Uh, the question is, can you do it at the price point that still keeps the FPV in this cost-effective range? The systems that are used by the military for this the price point starts in you know, mid four digits. So these are not consumer devices. And using military grade systems today would completely make the entire device cost prohibitive. But um, again, the question is how do we piggyback on consumer technology that has solved this problem for say cell phones and just operate it in different frequency band? So Mike, there's a lot of commentary on social media and elsewhere that these things are changing the battlefield particularly from an ISR perspective, that there's no hiding anymore. Everything is visible. You can't advance. Talk a little bit about the strategic impact on warfare, both in this context and more generally. Like, is this really changing everything or is this just, you know, one of those adaptations that is, is going to be a reaction to other things that are happening on the battlefield and there's inevitably going to be counters to that as well from an infantry assault perspective? Sure. So let, let me tell you how I think about it. So first, in my profession, it's very common to have two types of voices, right? There's sort of the futurist, this is changing everything voices, that whenever a new technology emerges, starts to be successful in the battlefield, and is used at scale, it, it feels like this is revolutionizing the fight, right? Um, there are also more conservative voices. I tend to be analytically on the more conservative side that sees things as being an evolution and then they will drive tactical adaptation. But what you're looking for is a lot more than just that. You're looking for uh, changes in operational concepts, in the organizational capacity, force structure, uh, real changes to how force fights and, and, and things at that scale. So the way I look at it is it is definitely leading to changes in tactics. And one of the biggest things that you've seen, at least in this specific war, is that it has led to a dispersal of forces and has made it rather hard to aggregate both on the offense and the defense. People may assume that, you know, drones might uh, inherently enable the defense, but that's not necessarily the case because you see troops trying to hold down terrain or trench line. And it's a very small size unit element there because they don't want to just subject themselves to fires, right? To attrition. So you don't see forces concentrating on the defense you don't see them concentrating on the offense either. That's why the fight has gone down from companies to platoons to small assault groups of somewhere size between maybe 11 to 16 men. So, so let me group. just ask you this because we've heard about this. We've discussed this on this podcast that the platoon style assaults have been one of the problems for this offensive that the Ukrainians have been launching since June, right? But you're saying that the FPVs are a contributing factor to the reason why they're assaulting these small groups, not just the insufficient training that prevents them from doing large-scale combined arms assault. Yeah, I think the FPVs are definitely a contributing factor. And uh, the fact that it's much harder to to mass and to employ force on a larger scale when you have FPVs and you don't have great solutions to them. But keep in mind a few things. First, we you see, for example, in the Russian attack of Divka, basically battalion-sized formations operating and the reason they they were trying to do that, even though they weren't successful, couldn't achieve a breakthrough, you know, it wasn't just FPVs. It's because they didn't have the enablers to break through minefields. They had to deal with anti-tank guide missiles on top of FPVs, right? And they had a host of issues, the combination of problems and challenges they could not resolve. And the fact that terrain and minefields do their job. They canalize advancing vehicles and formations and make them then vulnerable to things like FPVs. All right, that said... Look, EW is emerging as a counter. EW has now, as we just discussed, proliferated and has become much smaller and more uh, man portable. We now see EW systems appearing on Russian vehicles of different types. And EW is going to become cheaper and more widespread. So you see adaptations to FPVs as well. And so what's happening is you, you always have a technology that maybe denies the ability to maneuver. And then you'll have people trying to find adaptations to it. What I would suggest as a way of looking at this is... Futurists and the people who sort of glob onto any technology and emerges have a point. And often we need to correctly say that this technology may not be fully mature yet, right? We're looking at the World War I version of the aircraft, let's say. And we do not yet fully know how FPVs will impact the battlefield. Because each time we come back, for example, we go back to Ukraine, Rob and I, 
We go every three months. We see an evolution how the fight's being run. We see technologies being used better or differently than they were used before. And that is a very honest admission that this technology may not fully mature yet. Interference problems will be resolved. Terminal guidance problems will be resolved with the help of you know machine learning technologies. Uh, all sorts of other issues can be resolved you know on on these systems. Okay. On the other hand, where I think the the futures tend to go a bit awry is they usually make their case, Mitri, at the peak of when the technology is first emerged and starts to appear at scale, not before they see the adaptations and counters emerge to that technology, right? And so they forget that war at the end of the day is like uh, a human phenomenon. It's a socio-political phenomenon. That's a contest of wills. It's not just about the technology. The capabilities and the technology are one piece of the puzzle. They're an aspect of warfare, and they want to focus on that aspect, right? But at the end of the day, when the technology is introduced, it drives adaptations, it drives counters to it, and it drives the use of similar such technologies to negate it as well. So we don't know how this will all shake out, but I'm just I'm just trying to moderate that conversation where when people people say, oh, you know, tanks are obsolete, artillery is obsolete, and then they look at infantry casualties and they'll say infantry is obsolete too. You know, I guess we should just sit we should just sit in command posts and fight with drones with Wi-Fi masks, and that should be the future of warfare. And of course, it won't be because drones. Don't control terrain. They don't take terrain, right? There's a whole host of things that drones can't do. So we just need to moderate that, that conversation. Rob, talk a little bit about the ISR component of this. Again, everyone focuses on the kamikaze drones that destroyed armored vehicles, as you've discussed. But the ability to see large parts of the front in real time by you know, battalion commanders and brigade commanders and, and see all those drones is really, really powerful. And particularly in this context where the Ukrainian forces may not have real-time access to satellite maps and, and the like that you, you might have from, you know, U.S. force that's, that's doing uh, ground operations where they would have air cover, air surveillance assets, et cetera. But in Ukraine, that is a big differentiator, presumably for both sides, Russia and Ukraine, because of the widespread use of ISR. So talk a little bit about what you've seen there. Sure. Um, so, you know, one of the things that's, that's quite interesting to see is that um, in, in any part of the front right now, you know, Ukraine will probably have dozens of UAVs up at any one time, right? Or Russia is the same thing. Um, but all the command posts on that part of the front can see the feeds from these UAVs, right? And so it's not just, you know, your unit has access to UAVs and you can see that feed. You can also see the feeds of your adjacent units, or, you know, our tour units can see the feeds of infantry units. And so it, it it, it significantly uh, improves situational awareness for various commanders. And um, it's, it's really useful that in that regard. And because you have so many UAVs up too, you know, anytime, you know, Russian position is spotted, you have multiple UAVs like looking at from different directions. That also kind of uh, helps have a better idea of situational awareness. Um, you know, look, one of the big issues is that it's it's not just the the kind of gray zone between the, the, the front trenches of both sides. UAVs can seek well beyond the front line. And so if you ever want to mass... Uh, armor or mass forces, it becomes very difficult. It's very difficult to do that and achieve surprise. It's very difficult to, to um, you know, we have, in military, we have a term called assembly areas, which is where you you want to kind of form up your units before you, you go to attack. Well, those things have to be farther back now because you can you can identify things at, at greater range. And of course, you know, as UAVs get better and cameras get better, right, that's going to be even more and more a bigger problem. So uh, it is very difficult. Um, you know, one thing Mike was saying, we talk about the role of UAVs, I don't think UAVs have made anything obsolete. I think they've kind of adjusted the nature of, of warfare, but you know all the traditional capabilities are still important, right? So we, 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 there's a lot of folks on tanks for about UAVs, but the UAVs have made it much more difficult to be an infantryman too, right? Because at nighttime you'll see infantrymen like a squad trying to maneuver somewhere, and a Mavic 3T right with a thermal camera, right? it's only only costs like five thousand dollars, not expensive, can see these guys at, at, at you know multiple kilometers away. Can very easily identify them, especially when it's winter, right? Especially now when it's so cold, the say, difference between the, the body temperature. And so, you know, you often see at nighttime, you would be spotting up, you know, squads or smaller units and being able to either, either be used to call an artillery or drop munitions on them themselves, right? And that 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 really changes a lot of, of what we do. Um, both sides have adapted by using counter thermal, right? They, they use different kind of body suits to try and limit their, 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 their thermal uh, signature, but all these things are really important. And, and, and you know, I think the big point, uh, and I agree with Mike on this, we're in a phase of rapid adaptation. It's not fully clear where this ends up, right? We know the EW is going to try and respond to a lot of these things. Look, you know, some, some of these adaptations are very simple, right? I mean, 
you know, the beginning of the war, Russia had a lot of these kind of cages they put on their tanks, which people called cope cages, even though I thought they actually make some sense. Um, those went away after the first few months because they didn't stop, you know, TB2 or, or Javelin rounds. But then when, when uh, Mavic's dropping munitions or, or FPVs came back, now both sides, you know, use screens all over the place, right? And, and some of these are just adapted RPG screens. Well, now that FPV is using RPGs, the same screen kind of makes sense to defend against your vehicle. And a lot of times they're effective. Um, and so, you know, they're often they're very rudimentary kind of adaptations that can be effective because, yes, it's not a 100% solution. But if it, you know, protects you 20% of the time, that's still, an, you know, an important thing to kind of change. Um, so, it, you know, I think we're in this interesting moment where we're seeing the role of UAVs, how it's being, how it's changing. It changes every season, right, it, it, on both sides. Often Ukraine kind of ad- adapts first, then Russia kind of copies that. Um, but you know, where does this shake out? I'm, you know, it's not, not fully clear to me. Um, but I think one other thing is keep in mind, and, and, and Andre mentioned this, we talk about EW and UAVs, you know, they emit signals and ultimately signals can be picked up. Um, and, and that might be another form of, of kind of adaptation. You know, the Russians use EW systems to pick up on cell phone, uh, um, you know, signals and they'll, they'll often use that to ping for, you know, glided bomb strikes or artillery strikes or whatever. Well, it's certainly possible that, you know, there, there may be developments where they can kind of try and pick up on UAV signals and try and uh, more effectively locate where UAV operators are, which can make them a, a better, you know, greater target too. And both sides are going after FPV teams so they can find them because they know they're an important kind of target here. So I think there are a lot of ways, you know, we're going to see, you know, changes happen. Um, I think we should maybe see mostly come to kind of tentative conclusions about, you know, the, the nature of changes to warfare. Although I, I agree, I think ultimately... Um, you know, it is much harder to hide now than it used to be um, at nighttime, at daytime, so on. And a lot of this comes down to the fact that commercial technology has has progressed a lot and has got a lot cheaper. And that's really the big difference here is that it's not just military domain, it's now a commercial domain. And I think the big thing I'd emphasize to you know, U.S. or NATO military audiences is that any any uh, adversary we fight in the future will have these things. Right? They're going to have Mavics, they'll have FPVs. Because it's easy to buy if you were a you know small terrorist group. It's easy to buy if you were a state actor, right? So I think we have to have a, have a plan to kind of prepare for this. We got to learn from the Ukrainians because you know they're dealing with this threat right now. And presumably, you can not only use signal tracking to go after the UAV operators, but you can also you know use these FPVs to locate signals from jammers as well, and sort of build your poor man harms missiles that can destroy. The sources of the jamming obviously you have to be much more accurate than you can probably do today with the auto targeting there but it's probably coming right and, and you know mm-hmm. another issue you know, like i'm not the tech guy andre i think knows this much better than, than i do um but you know with the retransmitter uavs so obviously fpvs operate from line of sight and so you can kind of, kind of like radios in that regard where if you if you're operating on the other side of the hill radios off often don't operate properly fpv is the same thing um so you just retransmitter uavs to extend the range and, and make it more effective and improve terminal guidance well, retransmitter UAVs have to be full higher, right? As a as as a result, that means they're more susceptible to wind changes, right? To to other issues. And if both sides start taking out retransmitting UAVs, that will make FPVs much less effective. That will limit their range, right? There are a lot of there are a lot of kind of things that could change here. Um, the same thing with that, you know, retransmitter UAVs. You could probably automate some of those functions. Um, so that there are a lot of different places in this kind of this kill chain, right? With FPVs. Where if you can if you target one countermeasure, you can make them less effective. Or if you improve AI or targeting, whatever, you can make them more effective. And you know, my view is I, I'm not a you know not tech savvy guy, so I don't know exactly how it's going to kind of shake out here. But um, it's clear that what we're seeing right now is going to be different. It's not going to be the same way in a few months. Next year, it could be you know quite different. And Andre, let's bring you in here on this point specifically. You are seeing these adaptations where not only they're using these repeater drones. They're using mothership drones, right, that can take off with a bunch of FPV drones, deploy them to to a location, and then they fly from there. So talk about some of those adaptations that Rob mentioned. So the the first point on the um, harm missiles analogs uh, that would target the jammers, uh, in in many ways that's a cost-benefit struggle because the cheapest uh, trench EW device that blocks out telemetry costs under $2,000. So if you hit it, it's not that hard to replace. And with that device, you can separate an antenna from the device itself and just you know separate them by quite significant distance. So the fact that you would take out an antenna would add you know 100 bucks in cost. 
to repair. So for some of these trench-based things, it's really challenging to um, take them out with cheap FPVs or cheap harm analogs. And of course, you would not use a harm itself because that's seven hundred thousand dollars against uh, you know two thousand dollar target. So that's one problem with um, repeaters. Um, I've seen various different platforms used as repeaters, but Mavics themselves have been used as repeaters. Um, the beauty of them as repeaters is that they're also cheap. Uh, and so if you can keep it relatively above your own position, so not really within range of anything kinetic on the other side, it's pretty hard to take them out. And if you find, if you locate the Mavic itself, it doesn't mean that you have located the pilot because the communication between the drone um, along the line of sight happens to the Mavic. The Mavic is overhead. It's not the position itself. And then the Mavic talks to a much more uh, nearby unit. So it's much harder for somebody who is located on the enemy side to know where the pilot is. Not impossible, but much more difficult. And sometimes they would use Orlans that fly over collect signatures overhead, and then you would know both where the Mavic is and where the pilot is. So these are continually evolving uh, approaches. The mothership um, approach, and I've seen some videos that look quite horrific uh, of the Russians doing this, uh, where they're able to take two positions in a row with virtually no casualties, because they have deployed, um, they've first they've deployed uh, FPVs to figure out where the firing positions are. Then they neutralize them, uh, and it all happens without any infantry. And then infantry comes in and there's already almost em empty positions on the other side. So this mothership approach uh, both extends range, allows you to do a much shorter follow-up um, time. So you, you don't need to fly the entire uh, multi-minute trajectory. You can fly from this pre-base position. But the mothership itself is a point of vulnerability, so people will be targeting them. And these are larger, like octocopters, usually because they need to carry a lot of weight. It's not uh, the same cheap Mavic. Mavic cannot carry FPVs that are comparable in size to it, so it, it has to be a bigger drone. It's much more noisy, uh, and it's again much. It, it's an easier target. Uh, one thing I would also want to bring up, and it's, this is relevant for kind of future planning, and, and this is a supply chain dependence on China. Uh, there's been a lot of talk through the entire year that China is a risk factor. And uh, so far, I mean, up until very recently, none of these concerns about previously announced export controls have materialized uh, and people were able to fairly freely export components. And so, so you're, you're referring there to China announcing that they'll try to stop their drones from going to the zone of conflict via some export yes, controls. Yes. And they introduced multiple stages of that, from what I understand, most recent one uh, taking effect on September 1st. So we were able to buy drones post-September 1st from mainland China and deliver them to Ukraine via a third country in, in Europe. Uh, we're starting to see that some of the uh, carriers that previously provided the service, um, they've sent out no uh, notices in the last two weeks uh, saying that anything that's fully assembled will be turned around. If it's shipped by air or by sea, they did not mention land. Uh, I wonder if it's a reference to, um, you know, the land path to Russia. Maybe that's a nice exemption. Uh, I, I can't speak of it for sure. But on December 5th, I got the latest notice uh, saying that we cannot take fully assembled drones. And I've started to get inbound inquiries from some of the government buyers asking for ways around this. So I'm sure there will be some way around this. But this threat is now being taken more seriously because there's now some specific action taken by China. And Ukraine uh, is manufacturing some components. They're making frames. They're making these custom holders for payloads. They're making payloads themselves. Sometimes they modify uh, radios, these ELRS or crossfire radios, to change the antenna or some other piece. But still, Ukraine is heavily dependent on China for key components. And the question is, can we maintain any kind of asymmetry or prevent Russia from getting asymmetry in this capability? Because whatever the trajectory of this thing is, if it becomes very successful, you want to make sure you have more of it than the enemy. Uh, and right now, there's no clarity on how we can possibly achieve this if Russia can import in much larger quantities. And historically, any of these developments that have been promising and that have occurred on the Ukrainian side, uh, we, we've seen that Russia is slower on uh, you know, the, the R&D part, but faster on scaling. And they're also narrowing the number of SKUs of this the scaling. It's, it's far fewer different types of drones. Uh, they're using government funds against a small number of distinct models that they've settled on which allows them to get more mass, more quantity, and you know that, that's their advantage. They start slower, but then they move faster with the scaling. So this is another thing that Ukraine needs to address, and it needs to know where it would get components in quantities that are material. And the Russians themselves are really industrializing the production of some of these drones as well, right? So 
we're seeing thousands of drones being manufactured in Russia itself. Yes, yes. And besides the supply chain, the other bottleneck is training. These drones are much more difficult to operate than a Mavic 3, a quadcopter where a lot of your piloting is automated, where you are basically operating a camera. You're just choosing what you are looking at. And that's, that's the primary work you do as when you operate the Mavic. This is why it's so popular with you know, consumer photography, wedding, photo shoots, etc. Uh, here you are looking from you know this camera, uh, from this point of view of the drone itself, and you're piloting it, and it's very maneuverable, but it's much more difficult to train, and many people cannot do this because they have a physiological adverse reaction to you know, being in that environment. It takes three to four weeks to train somebody. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to do now is scale training itself. Like in Zaporizhia, close to the front, we are funding a drone school that you know is able to churn out several dozen people per month. That will be a bottleneck. It costs about 500 bucks to train one FPV pilot. Uh, and that's a worthwhile investment that needs to be made in parallel with getting the hardware. Because oftentimes the efficacy between good and bad teams is 10x different. The fraction of drones that hits the target and the, uh, relative to the entire you know, baseline of used FPVs is dramatically different depending on your experience. So it's important to not overlook the training of these uh, groups that fly so them. So you said it takes $500? takes about four to five hundred dollars per pilot and the reason why it's it's about one trainer can concurrently train about six uh trainees and it takes three to four weeks and they need to get some uh you know spare parts and you need to pay the trainer and you need to also get laptops to simulate these environments so it's it's not that expensive but it's the training cost per pilot that's comparable to the cost of one fpv drone so literally some of our listeners that are hearing you right now can wire $500 to Ukraine Defense Fund.org right now and create a FPV pilot in some weeks in Ukraine. In three weeks. Amazing. Mike, what else are you learning about the changing nature of the warfare, particularly when it comes to the use of various autonomous vehicles? You know, we talked about, uh, obviously, the aerial drones, but you're seeing also naval drones being used. There's discussion about ground-based vehicles as well. And where do you see this heading? So, I mean, I see that the, as always, we have a conversation here about sort of mass precision and in, increasingly we have sort of cheap precision and its proliferation at the front lines. And we're seeing drones starting to fill in for other roles, right? So this FPV drone costs four to $500 per one. Um, that's still a lot cheaper than any even anti-tank guided missile or the kind of smallest, cheapest uh, precision guide munition you could typically find on the front line. You have, you know, a similar conversation maybe about uh, naval drones. There's a fight that's sort of expanding electromagnetic spectrum between systems that are being used to identify radars and electronic warfare systems and versus sort of electronic uh, support for targeting. But, you know, where I see it going is a perpetual conversation, right? Um, precision is a counter for mass, but I've consistently not seen it as a substitute for mass. You still need ground forces, right? You still need some types of armored fighting vehicles. You still need fires. You need fire support. You need the size of fires advantage. And maybe, maybe that's where we'll end up. Maybe we will end up with these systems becoming, you know, to some extent, actual substitute for mass in some roles. I don't know if that's the case, but... Uh, I still hold to these views. I see drones starting to fill in for, for example, for counter battery fire, which is really interesting because both sides can no longer perform volume of fire missions like they used to. The Russian military had to adapt. It basically ran low on artillery ammunition. It could no longer concentrate artillery the way it used to. And instead, you had dispersed artillery, largely firing from fixed positions or hot points that are not very far from cold point where there are artillery pieces based. And both sides primarily worry, worrying about counter-battery fire from a drone. On the Ukrainian side, the real problem is the Russian Lancet. And you see that Ukrainian artillery pieces all live in these counter-Lancet homes. They have these nets and they have these uh, metal uh, sort of grates, counter-drone grates that are welded on top of the artillery pieces. And they're far less worried about actual counter-battery fire from artillery. And they're much more worried about FPVs and Lancet drones, right? And, and maybe, maybe at best case, the, the thing that concerns them about artillery is cross of bolt. And Orlan 30 might come in with a laser illuminator, and they might get hit by a Russian precision guide artillery shell, which is far less common, but they're making much more of. So one thing I'm noticing is that as a conventional war begins to consume the resources that both sides have, 
they're not able to replace artillery ammunition, right? They're having issues with whether it's art artillery barrels or it's ammo or it's barrels or it's ammo. They're constantly trying to run on both treadmills at the same time. You know, you're seeing drones start to fill in and you start to see doctrinal adaptation where both sides now increasingly rely on let's send drones for counter battery fire or for certain types of fire support missions or for overwatch. And then you see that driving force structure changes Andre and Rob discussed. If you look at the actual assault force relative to the drone support force, like you see there's quite a few people involved in the drone missions. Overwatch, strike, retransmission relative to the actual number of ground troops involved in the attack. Right? And that's I think that's that's drive, going to drive changes in organizational capacity and force structure as well. So these are these tend to be the things I look for to see, you know, if tactics are are evolving to seeing changes to to this other way of, of you know these other elements of the military. But what, let me just yeah, ask but, you about the naval piece of this because a lot has been made about these strikes on the Black Sea Fleet. Now some of them have been missile strikes with uh, Storm Shadow and the like, not necessarily naval um, drone strikes, but some of them have been. So do you see that changing the nature of naval warfare? Honestly, not really. I mean, you know, when when I, when I look at a drone, I sort of ask, I usually ask myself, what is it? Is it a remotely operated aircraft? Is it a missile? Or is it, you know, a long-range torpedo that's operated or something like that? What is the role that's filling? And, you know, the Russian Navy, the Black Sea Fleet, had a big problem early on with a uh, coastal defense cruise missile battery that, that Ukraine blazed. So it had a big problem with uh, supporting its its force on Snake Island and then trying to enforce a blockade, right? The drones gave Ukraine a pretty good asymmetric capability in the absence of something that could deliver a long-range anti-ship missile or a torpedo or something of that type or the ability to, let's say, offensively mine, right? So it's made it for a very pretty good, uh, you know, asymmetric um, Placeholder, and it gave it a long-range strike ability against infrastructure like the Kirk Street Bridge, you know, or, or Port of Novorossiysk, where an attempt was made. All right, so it's interesting that the technology is going to move in this direction. It's going to give lots of other countries who don't necessarily have those higher-end conventional capabilities the the uh, ability to attain some similar effects or some parity of effects with it. I think I think that's quite fascinating. I don't know if it's going to change the character of war to be much more remotely operated autonomous. But it's clear that things are heading in that direction. All right. That said, the case of what's happening in the Black Sea was a very successful battle for Ukraine to be able to open up a corridor for export of grain and steel and to essentially challenge and successfully challenge the Russian blockade and being this insurance blockade. Okay. That said, this battle is far from over, right? And the Black Sea fleet was forced to displace more to the port of Norris not really because of the drone threat, but because of the long-range strike cruise missile threat, right? If you look at the means that most affected the Black Sea Fleet, it's actually still pretty traditional and conventional means. Um, and, and it's not clear how much of the Black Sea Fleet, probably the cruise missile shooters displaced in the overseas, while other elements are, st of it are still in Sevastopol. I don't know, but it's, it's worth having Rob and Andre chime in on this because looking at the, looking at the, the naval warfare aspect of it, I think it's really fascinating what drones have allowed Ukraine to do. And they've allowed Ukraine to establish a degree of sea denial and maybe in some parts of, of the northwest corner of the Black Sea, even sea control. It's very much worth studying. Um, but but there's more that we would have to know about what really happened there and, and how it played out, if that makes any sense, right? This is one aspect, and, and we're a big challenge. Rob and I do not have the ability to go out into the Black Sea and take a look at what's going on and quite every people. I mean, if a Barab is shaking his head right now, like, you know, we could, we could get a boat. <laughs> you, know, you know, Rob is a former Marine and a former director of Center for Naval Analysis Program. So together we could probably make something happen there. Hey, That's a hey, I love boats too. <laughs> but it might be otherwise. Uh, I want to I join you on the next trip uh, when it gets a little bit warmer. But by the, by the way, we should say that it's great that Ukraine is able to get some ships out of the port of Odessa, but the volume of ships that have left is numbering a few hundreds, right? It's a, it's a small fraction of what they were able to do when they had the deal with Russia before Russia tore it apart in, in July. So this is still not really compensating for what they need and want to do in terms of all their exports. It's still very much under threat. But Rob, uh, let's bring you in on the naval piece. Uh, naval side... I still have some questions about how certain events happens. I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that the Russian military during this war has has waited to adapt, right? They've kind of done their thing and they've waited until Ukraine has punched them in the face until they actually adapt. 
right? And yeah, sometimes it takes them to get multiple punches in the face before they actually do something, right? So we knew, we knew when the high moors arrived, right? They knew, they, they was telegraphed months in advance that Ukraine was going to high moors. Russia took almost no steps to prevent this. And then all of their ammunition depots within high moors started getting blown up. And they're like, oh, who, who could have thought this was going to happen, right? And the and same then, thing with attack like, thems. It was advertised for exactly. months and they didn't adapt until they got hit, right? Exactly. Same, same with Tacums. Um, and, and again, the Bird Johns Garfield was the obvious target for, for the M39. And then lo and behold, exactly what happened is, is what you expected. Um, and of course, they adapted to that. They started using FARPs, but they, they, they take time. So, I mean, you know, the Snake Island thing was an interesting case study in this, in that um, when Ukraine started receiving, uh, what was it, um, harpoons, anti-ship missiles, they started receiving artillery, like Caesars that had range that could get hit the island from from the, the mainlands. Obviously, we know the Bladana or Ukraine artillery piece also support, but we, 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 you know, once we knew the Caesar was coming, all right, that, that you know, Russia should have known they have the range to hit this island, and that means this it, holding this island is going to become untenable at some point. Well, they didn't, they didn't, you know, they didn't respond to that. They just waited until the island started getting hit by artillery. They started losing valuable equipment and and, and, and men on the islands. And then when they tried to, you know, go, going back back and forth to the islands, they're getting destroyed by either TB2s or by harpoons or whatever, right? And so again, this is something that should have been foreseeable, but they waited until kind of Ukraine, you know, hit them in the face until they actually adapted. And so I think it's, you know, across this war, the Russian Navy has been very kind of reactive. They've waited. Um, they haven't kind of preempted kind of, you know, certain things. And then Ukraine has some asymmetry, you know, uh, um, ways of kind of dealing with this or, or threats to kind of uh, create for Russia. So, like, I think they've adapted to some extent. As Mike said, I think there's a lot of questions or uncertainty that I have. I don't know everything they've done or exactly how the naval fight is gone. Um, but certainly they made a number of kind of, you know, obvious mistakes in that regard. Um, you know, the other thing I'd say about modern warfare, and this is something that Audrey mentioned before, the cost-benefit side is, is one of the big factors here. Um, one thing with Orla and UAVs, which are not very uh, capable, they're not that impressive, right? They're not, they don't have great capabilities, but they're very cheap to make. And so if Russia could put up Orlan tins all day, and for the Ukraine, it's a question of, does it make sense to use a man pads to fire and knock down Orla and UAV? And typically, it doesn't make sense, right? And so it means that Russia has a, you know, relatively persistent ISR capability. Okay, the, the, the footage isn't great, but, you know, it's enough to be a kind of problem. And that's true for a lot of weapons. A lot. That's true for a lot of systems. And the, you know, the, my view, the big, the big, I think, technological development in this war is the role of commercial systems, right? Military systems are, are, are what they are, but it's there are a lot of cheap commercial systems that were not available ten years ago that you can now buy off the shelf. You can buy from Amazon that have a very useful military role, whether it's FPVs, Mavics. Um, you can buy night vision goggles, much cheaper than they used to be. Thermal optics, much cheaper than they used to be. A lot of these things, it was only in the domain of militaries, maybe 15, 20 years ago. And I think in a large part, I think actually it's, it's a uh, result of OIF and OEF because once we, we use military, we once it became a demand for some of these kind of commercial systems, the prices started going down. So, so explain OIF and OEF for the audience. So the invasion of Iraq and, and Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, and over time, you know, U.S. We, we, a lot of our kind of commercial companies developed that start producing, you know, equipment for for soldiers or other kinds of uh, systems. I think China kind of jumped in at that. Like, you know, Holosun is this kind of famous Chinese optic manufacturer for 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 uh, weapons optics, much cheaper than Western designs, you know, but it's it's kind of you know good enough usually. And a lot of Russian soldiers use them, right? and that was not something that was possible 15, 20 years ago to buy these things commercially. Now it is, right? Now crowdfunding, and you know, Andre knows this better than we do, crowdfunding plays a really important role in wars. It would not have been as effective 20 years ago because it just wasn't, there weren't the available options to buy that could have this kind of military role. So I think that's been really the, the, the significant development. And of course, you know, that means it's, it's not just, you know, nation states. It's obviously terrorist groups or, or paramilitary groups that can use these things and use them effectively. The, the barriers for entry are much lower than they used to be. Um, and, you know, everyone's watching what's going on in Ukraine and everyone is going to draw lessons from this. And so, you know, we, we my, my concern is that we, like a U.S. military, NATO military, are not um, responding as fast <clears throat> enough as other countries are about these developments. And look, you know, China China produced a lot of these UAVs. They produce a lot of these FPVs. Um, they're learning from what Russia's doing, too. You know, if, if the U.S. military gets to fight with China at some point, why will we not assume that China will have these, you know, these things developed and can produce them and use them at scale, right? They, 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 they likely can. So um, I think that's one place to look at when we go forward and also about the weapon systems they develop. And like in another one, the anecdote, you know, I know a company is developing long-range kamikaze UAVs. The price of them is, is, you know, roughly what a javelin missile costs. 
but the, the range is you know 100 times more than what a javelin range uh, or, or you know, 50 times uh, more than the range of a javelin in the same kind of warhead. And so that's where we're getting back into it and say, hey, we have all these weapon systems. The price point uh, is not necessarily where it could be for future weapon systems, but a lot of this comes to the right demand signals, right? Western governments have to come up and say, hey, these are things we need. This is the price point, price point we expect you to build this at because we know other competitors can do this. And, you know, I think when you look at Ukraine, if Ukraine is making FPVs that, that can, you know, resist EW, that can penetrate tanks, it only costs maybe $1,000 when you put everything into, you know, maybe software or other things. Um, you know, some important questions we should be asking about why does a Javelin missile cost, you know, $80,000, $100,000, right? Other things of that nature. And, and, and I think we should be looking at that. We should be asking those kind of questions. Well, and unfortunately, the U.S. military is not known for being able to buy cheap stuff or do rapid procurement, right? But Mike, you wanted to jump in here. Yeah, I just wanted to say that, make two points. First, the thing about the FPV, though, is that it, it, it does right now, and that's where we need to be cheap at $400 to $500 that allows it to be employed in that way. You can make it a bit more expensive with these other systems that are going to be added to it, let's say. But if you start adding a, a thermal imager to it, if you start adding certain other chips and things that people want to be able to determine guidance, the real challenge is managing the price point because if the thing costs several thousand dollars, it can't be used as expendably as disposably. That's the rough cost of whether it's the better pound-for-pound system in the world, like a Mavic 3T with a thermal imager. So once you start getting to several thousand, it gets harder and harder to supply them to units. It's still doable. It's just harder. And you have to keep in mind that the Ukrainian units at the front need something that they can use like this and be able to afford to lose it. You're talking about the U.S. military is very appetite. For the U.S. military, the system is too cheap. They would need Raytheon to make it like 20 times the price in several states for it to be procurable. I'm just joking. But... Um, but the reality is that we, we could very easily benefit from the experience in Ukraine. We have so many companies testing systems in Ukraine, but they have no contracts to develop those systems, either for us or for the Ukrainians. Even though we are spending plenty of money, and you know a lot of the money we spend never leaves the United States. Like, it doesn't actually go to Ukraine. It's to substitute for systems we send to Ukraine. So I just worry that we, we neither have an expansive lessons learned, uh, let's say program or, or initiative, nor do we have a lot of contracts for people to develop these systems there, nor I think are we best positioned in terms of training and adaptation based on what's happening in Ukraine and where where the, if not the character of war, at least tactics and technology are going. And tactics and technology always have to be forward-looking. Strategy can look backwards, but tactics and, stra- and technology are forward-looking. They're intertwined. And, and it, let me, if you jump in real quick, um, you know, Mike, I'm going to mention that op-ed, but one of the important things we have to do going forward, and as you know, as Zeluzny mentioned as an interview with the Economist, is that you know, we can out-innovate Russia, but we're not out-innovating Russia right now. Ukraine out- innovates Russia, but they do it at a small scale, and they need additional support to kind of do that scale. Where FPV is a good example, Ukraine started using FPVs well before Russia did, then Russia caught up, and now they're, they're, they, they have a quantitative advantage on most parts of the front. We have a lot of innovation capability, capacity in the West, but our companies are not, the, the demand signal is not there yet. And so we have to consider at least Western companies or Western governments, you know, signing contracts with the Western companies to provide equipment that Ukraine needs, right? Specific things like maybe Kamikaze drones, maybe EW, things that Zaluzhi mentioned, the things here are things that we need to kind of break out of the, the stalemate as he, as, he, as he framed it. And right now it's not happening as, as it needs to. Right now, a lot of Western companies kind of test things, at, at, you know, on their own dime, but not, you know, it, 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 we're talking about dozens of systems as, as opposed to like thousands, tens of thousands. And so I think important division of labor has to come up where I think Ukraine can produce a lot of FPVs themselves if they have the funding to do so. And I think a lot of countries, like Western countries that maybe don't have the ammo to provide Ukraine could probably fund production FPVs in Ukraine themselves or EW or things of that nature. And or, then, or, or the explosive know, for them, right? Those RPG rounds and other things. That, that too. Um, and then we could look at saying, okay, here's some things that only maybe Western defense companies can do by producing longer range, maybe like a hundred operational level kind of uh, kamikaze drones that might be useful that can that can operate in GPS device environments. Not the very long range ones. Ukraine are making them themselves. I don't think I think they can do that themselves. But the operational military style ones that can hit target maybe 100 kilometers, 150 kilometers, command posts, you know, electronic warfare systems, you know, army kind of level assets, things of that nature. We I think we could do that. We have companies that can do that. They can do it at scale, but they have to have the 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 contract signs. And ideally, we have to have another customer. Because if they want, if, if Western companies are going to scale production capacity, they have opportunities cost too. They have to know there's going to be a long-term contract customer for this. So ideally, it's a question of us, like a U.S. military, NATO military, or other, NATO, other militaries like Taiwan or someone else, 
finding weapons that we need, they need, that Ukraine also needs, that we can test and develop in Ukraine, it can scale production in Ukraine, it would still be useful for us to produce long term. And I think that, I think a lot of these things are there. I just think we're 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 too slow to kind of uh, kind of conceptualize what we need, what we're seeing from this war, and then sign those contracts now because now we can help out Ukraine a lot. Then look, you know, the EW side, you know, as I said before, we're going to face FPVs, Mavics, other things in any war we fight in the future. We have an incentive to develop test EW systems now, get the Ukrainians to 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 figure out how to use them best. And then learn from this experience so that we are ready for our next war. And if we don't do that, we're going to learn lessons the hard way. And and it's better to to learn them the easy way and also save Ukrainian lives uh, while doing so. No, I mean, both of you, Mike and Rob, you're making such a great point because the debate right now around funding Ukraine is all about obviously helping Ukraine. And there's not enough discussion about how, how that can help us, not just strategically in terms of helping Ukraine survive and beating back Russia, but also in terms of being the battlefield and the testing ground for a lot of these new innovations, helping our own militaries learn from them, develop new tactics, new new systems that we can use in our own fights should we have them in the future. But Andre, let me give you last word because we heard from you on this podcast just now that $500 donation to Ukraine Defense Fund, ukrainedefense.org, will buy you an FPV operator. Talk a little bit more about what other things you're doing and how far those dollars that go to your organization, to your charity, would go in terms of producing actual effects on the battlefield? Uh, let me first give you a couple of more interesting examples on the FPV side, and I'll answer your question. Um, there are a couple of new applications that I'm seeing that might scale and might have more relevance for operations outside of Ukraine, and therefore a stronger incentive for Western companies to engage. Uh, one is that um, an FPV drone uh, can in fact kill somebody just by impact. You don't need to have a payload to kill somebody. Um, it, it it has you know if you remember this uh, 2022 hit on Al Zawahiri in Kabul where R96 Hellfire hit him through a balcony window, and uh, didn't really have much collateral damage because it has razor sharp you know blades and just killed the guy by impact. Uh, an FPV drone has propellers that rotate at 20,000 RPM, and this thing flies at 120 kilometers, 120 miles an hour. So if that hits you, you can't outrun it, and you basically become, uh, you know, ground meat uh, after that. So the very sound of an FPV now causes panic among the folks who hear it. Uh, you know, a lot of their mortar fires used to just suppress enemy action. You're not trying to hit the target; they're just trying to create the impression that they are being deterred in some form. And, uh, you know, if you're moving your mortars, it takes, you know, five to seven uh, shots to even settle the plate. So uh, what an FPV can do is to do a round trip that doesn't result in the loss of a vehicle, but still has a suppression effect. And it can do a targeted hit with almost no collateral damage on specific uh, targets. When you look at the overall spend, I mean, if you believe in the official casualty numbers on the Russian side, it's, let's say, um, you know, one to 200,000 killed in action. Uh, if you combine all the spend that uh, has occurred by Ukrainian allies on this war, uh, it's, you know, approaching, you know, 80 to $90 billion. That means that the spend per person, again, in the crude terms, is $300,000 per killed in action on the enemy side. Uh, so in some sense, it's Less if you count the wounded, but yes. Uh, yes. But again, if 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 you if you assume it's one hundred thousand, uh, if you if only one hundred thousand people were killed on the Russian side, it's a lower estimate. That means that nine hundred thousand are expended roughly per per one KOA. Uh, remember, the FPV drone without the payload costs several hundred dollars, so it's a thousand times cheaper. So in some sense, if you are able to take out infantry one by one, that's dramatically cheaper than uh, you know using these combined arms operations. So whenever you can reach them, which again, is not enormous. I mean, these FPV drones are very, very tactical. They can't fly very far, even though there are attempts to move to um, from quadcopters to uh, fixed wing FPVs that would have longer range and therefore hit targets at a farther away. But still, the point is that because this is a war of attrition now and resources matter so much, Ukraine has to have the capabilities that the basically generics of US version of US brand name systems. So this is an example of a generic to an R9X Hellfire that costs, I mean, we don't know exactly how much it costs, but it's probably around $100,000 based on comparables. So you, you, you're having, you know, two order of magnitude, three order of magnitude 
difference in pricing if you are moving to this uh, platform for use cases where it does apply. Of course, it cannot do the same things that Hellfire in terms of range, etc. But uh, nevertheless, it's a very important thing to consider that this range of capabilities can um, make the same dollar go way farther. And, and uh, because of that, it gives Ukraine a chance in a scenario where you know Russia has 10x more to spend on uh, the war effort than Ukraine can spend domestically because of the GDP difference. Uh, so that's just to wrap this FPV discussion. I think it's, it's, again, I agree with Mike and Rob that this is not a replacement for things, but it's a major complement and it's incredibly important to stay ahead of the other side um, you know, on, on multiple dimensions. Uh, now to the uh, work that UDF is doing. So Ukraine Defense Fund um, is a US-based 5.1c3 organization. We are trying to find, work very closely with the Ukrainian general staff on identifying the needs and we're trying to understand what can move the needle um, the most. And right now, it's very clear that you know, training is one of the huge bottlenecks. This has been cited by various analysts um, here and um, you know among the other NATO allies. Including the two we have on the podcast on, right now. Yeah, the, the, the two prominent analysts who, who we have on this podcast have uh, emphasized this repeatedly. We want to make sure that we can provide quality training to people who operate these systems, both FPVs and other types of drones, including fixed-wing aircraft. We are funding uh, several efforts around this, both the trainers and the facilities and some of the spare parts. Uh, we're focusing on a number of uh, things that are high-leverage incidental expenses for these organizations. Oftentimes, they have good ideas for which they don't have headcount, they don't have budget, and we're just trying to pick up the slack. We're moving away from buying disposable assets because in some sense, it's we can never have the scale that any nation state would have. So we're trying to find very specific bottlenecks and fill them. All of our overhead is funded by uh, an anonymous um, centi billionaire, so somebody who has covered all of our travel costs, etc. So we spent all of the donations that we receive on direct program expenses in Ukraine. And, um, you know, anyone who is interested in facilitating this can go to ukrainedefensefund.org and make a contribution through whatever channel they find more convenient. Ter terrific podcast, terrific cause, what you're doing, Andre. I hope people that are listening can contribute. Again, ukrainedefensefund.org. Thanks again, guys. Always a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. <laughs>